Hello, and welcome to the second half of season seven of the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. It's great to be back after a month at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and a short break. We're back to regularly scheduled programming, so be sure to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. This week, I'm speaking with Debbie Weiss. When Debbie lost her childhood sweetheart at 50, she was forced to take a look at her life and start asking what she needed to be happy. When she finally started dating again, she found that many of the men she encountered weren't it, and there were enough schmucks out there, her word, not mine, to write a book about it. Yeah, this is a big warning. My book does a lot more, but I really did want to warn about the poor quality of these schmucks and how they try to make you think that this is an acceptable mode of behavior, and it isn't. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good, Kristen, and thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I'm really excited to talk about your book. I'm excited to talk about all your life changes. But sadly, I think we're going to have to go way back in time to childhood to start to not a very wonderful experience. I feel like so many of the things that I've learned about you stemmed from your loss of your mother at age 10. Sorry to start on such a down (laughs) note, but could you tell us a little bit about that? I grew up in a very, in a small Northern California town. And I'm an only child and I was a normal kid living with my dad and my mom and my cat. And during the summer, I believe it was 1973, my mom started to just stay in her bedroom all the time. And I didn't know what was happening. I'd sit outside the door. I couldn't tell. My dad's like, leave her alone. Don't, don't bother her. And then one night he said, we're going to the hospital. And that was a few months before, a couple, a few weeks actually before my 10th birthday. He never took me back in again. And then, you know, over the next few weeks, I'd hear, oh, I'd say, where's mom, obviously. And he'd say, well, she's in the hospital. She's not doing that well. And then finally, one day he took me out and he said, she's probably going to die. And um, he was crying. I'm crying talking about this. I can't believe it. And um, I said, I know she's already dead. I could just tell from his voice. And so she died four days before my 10th birthday. And I found out later he hadn't taken me to the hospital because she'd had a heart attack when she was in there. So he didn't want me to see her like that. Yeah. It's amazing to me at not even quite 10 years old, you had the kind of foresight to know from the way your dad spoke or what his face did that, that she was already gone. I could tell my dad was, when I was younger, he changed a lot, but he was pretty gruff. He's retired. He's a nuclear physicist. And he was certainly came from a time where the wife did the child rearing. We'd go to a planetarium in an afternoon or something, but he wasn't deeply involved. And he was always pretty gruff and stern, it seemed to me when I was a kid. So when his voice was breaking and his face was crumpling, I could tell. And also he said, mommy. I remember that too, because my parents always talked to me like I was a little grown up. So when he said, your mommy, that was it because he was seeing me as a child then. The reason I start with this is because you've woven it so interestingly into your book, how there was a moment that kind of, you almost got stuck at that moment. You kind of stayed a child in a certain way, even though you've been treated by your parents your whole life, almost as an adult from the beginning, which I thought was a really interesting revelation to make. Yeah, I guess I probably did stay somewhat close to home. I had to keep an eye on my dad. Now I knew a parent could vanish. So I kind of had to make sure he was close by. And staying close to home, you ended up marrying your childhood sweetheart. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how that all evolved meeting George. My dad and his mother worked together at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, which is a research 
laboratory in Northern California. Both our parents were physicists and George's mom was very social. She had a lot of events. So when I was seven, we had to go to a pool party at their house. It was a work thing. She invited, George's mom was inviting the colleagues and uh, I was seven. George is older man of 11. <laughs> his mom introduced us. George was such a well-behaved little boy shaking hands in his little black swimsuit. I saw his model train set. He was just so cute. And then over the years, we got thrown together at various family events. And we finally clicked when I was 17 and he was 21. I was a senior in high school. He was a senior at UC Berkeley majoring in engineering. And we started dating and it lasted. And as far as career-wise, you started out as a lawyer. How did that happen? I feel like in a family, a physicist, a boyfriend whose mother's a physicist, how did you follow the direction of law? Honestly, Kristen, it's a really short answer. I'm not very good at math. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I can elaborate a little. I was just one of those kids where my math scores were pretty average and my English scores were really high. So I was just more, I related more to words which isn't surprising because I became a writer later. And then I joke that, you know, I hated high school. I was bullied in junior high. And I think that kids who want to become control freaks or who are control freaks become lawyers. I was basically pretty much of a control freak. And law seemed a good way to, to work with that. But you did, I mean, from what I gather, it wasn't something that you really ever loved when you were doing it. Or did you have that control freak side that was easy to turn on when you were a lawyer? Okay. I'm glad nobody can see the faces I'm making. <laughs> you're like, oh, no. I think part of that is generational. You're younger than I am, but I come from a generation in the US and we were yuppies. There was LA Law and Gordon Gecko and Greed is Good. And we all wanted to buy homes. Real estate in California was not as crazy then. And somehow we wanted nice cars and we wanted security. So I looked into the law as something that worked with my skill set that would give me a lot of options. It was designed for that. I didn't have an adventurous spirit. And I don't think the people I knew then were like the millennials I see now who are more into adventure, which I actually really admire. Yeah. I, for me, at least, I remember we had a lot of times growing up, like at one point somebody was embezzling from my dad's company and it was this kind of up and down with finances my entire life. And so for the longest time, it was like, how can I do something I want to do and actually make money? <laughs> now I'm back mm -hmm. to that. <laughs> I didn't expect to come all the way, you know, full circle, but there was this kind of, I want this really creative, cool career, but I also need to make money, which I remember being such a driving thing and being similarly, I am very English driven, very creativity driven, all of this kind of stuff. And it was always, what do you do that can make you money? So I do obviously want to talk about George and, and how your relationship continued is the best way to put it. So 1721, you finally, finally clicked. It lasted. I know again in the book, I know that there was probably a few moments that you thought, oh, do I want to date? Do I want to meet new people? But you and George did end up together. Yeah, I did want to. Actually, when I went to college, I figured we would break up. And my dad thought that was a good idea to have a more college kind of experience. My dad, in some ways, was ahead of his time. After my mom died, he got into meditation. And I remember when I was going to college, he said, you should probably spend more time with the girls in your dorm. He said, or later, you're not going to have women friends. So it was mm. interesting as even back then, he got the idea that I would need women friends, which I think is interesting. So I did want to break up with George actually my first year of college because I wanted to be free to go to parties and not even necessarily meet boys, but I wanted to be free and I wanted to have a more college kind of experience. 
but nothing really gelled. And George was pretty strong. I remember he physically carried me out of a fraternity party once. It was really cute. It was like officer and a gentleman. I'd said I was going to go to a party with girlfriends. I'd come home. I was late. I remember I was 18. Looking back, I'm not thrilled with myself, but I was 18. I was on the UC Berkeley campus. He came in, said hi to everybody. He was a super friendly, nice guy. It was a sweetheart, put me over his shoulder, carried me out like an officer and a gentleman. And it was just so cute. And I was, I matured pretty quickly after that. By the time I was 21, I was pretty sure I was going to law school and that I was, my life was with George. I never really got to go through that phase, but it also passed. Yeah, I understand that because I feel like I ended up married and now subsequently divorced, but spent from the time I was about 18 turning 19. I ended up marrying the guy that I was dating then. And it is funny because I feel like there's this thing where you have the potential. And I guess this is why I brought your mom up at the beginning as well. But you have this potential to stay in that. I don't want to say childhood romance because it's not, but you grow up, you want to be with that person and the relationship. That's the relationship. You don't change. You stay with the same person. So like you don't become a different you don't explore on your own as much. You don't look at yourself individually. What would I want to do if I were single? Where would I travel on my own? So you're kind of limited and that you are with the same person you've been with. So you don't do different kinds of things. You don't see yourself on your own. And maybe you don't change that much from the person that your partner sees you as, right? Like yeah. your person, if you married so young, if your husband saw you a certain way, so you probably saw yourself that way, even though you were young. Exactly. And I think that was, I remember like we didn't have kids and it was always in a weird way. It was almost hard to discuss because it felt too adult, which was ridiculous. We both had no, successful careers. Yeah. I know you mentioned not having kids. And do you think that was kind of a thing? Was it just something scary to talk about almost? It felt kind of scary to talk about because I think I always did feel kind of young with George and I always felt like this is who we were. We were George and Debbie, the kids of nuclear physicists. And in some ways we stayed kids. He was a genius engineer. He was like a math. And in the US, we have SATs, highest scores 800. He was an 800 SAT math kid. He was a national merit scholar. So we were just these nerdy folks. And I don't know that we really saw ourselves as parents. I've wondered if I'd married somebody else who really wanted to have kids, if I would have possibly seen myself as a parent. But I think I still always saw myself as these people's daughter, this daughter-in-law, this wife. So it didn't feel that. Plus, I was practicing law and I just didn't have the bandwidth. Yeah, it's funny because my sister just said to me recently, she said I should have a dog. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm dog sitting to see if I have enough adult responsibility to do that. <laughs> and she was like, well, I certainly hope you would. Now, this is my sister who has two dogs, cats, is 10 years younger than me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not sure if I do. Because uh, same thing, but just spent so much time not really growing. I don't want to say I wasn't growing up. I'm a full-fledged adult. I've done very adult things. But yeah, I was for a long time somebody's daughter, somebody's wife. And yeah, in a weird way, that responsibility level always seemed a bit scary. It seems scary to me too. It did. Um, I think I always thought having children seemed like it would take an incredible amount of planning and all that. But I think honestly, I may not have had a huge maternal instinct. And part of that might have been growing up as an only child with a father, not having a mother kind of role model. So that that might be part of it. But I also think at another level that maybe not all women feel that deep urge to have children. I think that's getting beyond the scope of this show. <laughs> but it's something I certainly read about, you know, that not everybody 
feels those urges and that's good. That's okay. And I definitely don't think you're getting beyond the scope because I think I do want to talk about changes that people have had beyond 35 women have had. And I think that such a big thing is coming to the realization that, hey, I wasn't a mother and I'm okay with that. Or I was a mother and chose that over a job. And I think that that's a huge thing that we should be talking about as women. So it's not beyond the scope at all. And I agree with you. If I can't even take care of a dog, I might not have a maternal instinct. I could get through law school. I could, I had really high test scores. I could do this. I could handle a caseload. You know, we were homeowners. George had a very good job. And somehow when I thought about kids, it was always like, oh, well, we'd have to move and we'd save our money and college is this, and this is that. And I would just throw so many obstacles down. But I think if I'd had a real urge to have children, I, I could have worked with it. But somehow it seemed insurmountable. So I'm thinking that it was more that I just didn't have that deep maternal urge. And as far as law, I know you didn't stay with it beyond what, 40, 39, 40. So what 40. happened there? Oh, my goodness. Okay, this is around 2001. Again, I didn't like to go far from home. So I wound up at a very conservative firm, which did insurance law about 15 minutes from my home. And I didn't really, I was, I'm a suburban person. I didn't want to work in a city. So I picked what was available and what offered the highest salary. And it was an insurance defense firm. And it was extremely sexist. Mm. One more time, extremely sexist. There were no women partners. Uh, When I left, there were a couple, but they were non-equity, which means they could get kicked out. And they did for no good reason. Uh, The first time I went to court, this old judge guy just yelled at me. And now I would laugh. I'd think, okay, he's a dick. But then I was just mortified. You know, it was hostile. I joked that I left law because people got to be mean to me all day. I don't like working in an adversarial setting. I'm not a gladiator. Back then, I wasn't as strong as I am now to deal with things like that. But I really didn't enjoy it. I'd worked there well for 11 years. I was very stressed. I don't do well in stress. And I asked to take a three months, take the summer off, take an unpaid sabbatical. Again, after 11 years, three months off, unpaid sabbatical. And I didn't do a lot of litigation at that point. I have, but I was doing things that were more giving opinions. So I didn't have a lot of deadlines. And they said, no, you can't take an unpaid sabbatical. And George said, great, you quit tomorrow. We're done. It seems like he had just such a matter of fact, like, you don't like it. It's not working for you. They're kind of assholes anyway. Just quit. That's right. It is. We were on the yuppie trail. We had a small, cute house in our little suburb. We were looking at buying a bigger, more expensive house in the same suburb. It was when housing prices in California were going crazy before the crash. We were looking at his stock options, my salary, and all this. At one point, he looked at me and said, he said, if you quit right now, we can afford our life right here in this house. We have plenty of resources. We keep our savings or you move and you're a mortgage slave. And that was it. And again, not having kids was helpful in that way because we could do that. We, we did fine on his salary. And I don't know, I've had doubts like oh, I was a bad feminist for leaving the workforce. <laughs> but I also think being in a firm that was so sexist and being miserable is not very feminist either, to be fair. It wasn't. I always thought I'd go back and I would find another kind of law because obviously I still have a law degree that I could employ at any time. But somehow I just never went back. (laughs) And I think that's okay. We should be able to explore options. I do feel like saying, you know, you have to be at the top of a corporation to be a good feminist is bullshit personally. So (laughs) I think so too. It was a time when we were all dressed in boxy suits like men and trying to act more like men 
and being talked over at everything and having our opinions pretty much disregarded. And that was a difficult time. I think I like to think that more modern versions of feminism let women act like women instead of trying to act like a different version of a man. Yeah, definitely. Because I feel like, I mean, what's masculine, what's feminine, but the minute somebody says success Mm. for women, it's like, you're a bitch if you act like a man, masculine traits, what have you. Yeah. But for the longest time, that was the only way to get ahead. I would also like to think times have changed for sure. We can hope. So George got sick. We keep saying George was. So I think it's pretty obvious that things didn't last forever. I feel like your story has a parallel as far as how George treated his own illness and kind of how your dad told you about your own mother's illness. Very much. Very much. George was a workaholic. That was bad. He was a workaholic. He was the chief technical guy in a product, a personal finance product called Quicken, which was put out by Intuit. And that was a pretty big deal. And so he was a workaholic. And then one day in 2009, he comes home after Quicken has shipped. He would not deal with this before Quicken has shipped and said, Quicken has shipped. I'm going to the hospital tomorrow. All right. People don't usually choose that, but um, said, okay, maybe he was getting a physical. And then he came home and said, they're running tests. And I said, I don't know what that means. He said, I don't either. We're waiting a week. Well, we did. If I recall, it was an extremely long week. Mm. And then he came home and he said, I've got metastasized male breast cancer. And the next thing he said is, I will always tell you the truth, but I'm going to be the only one who talks to you about it. Yeah. And I didn't know what that meant then, but I knew this wasn't good. And how do you feel? I'm trying to think how I even want to phrase this. You now looking back on that, as you said, you're stronger or you have a different outlook than you did then. If it was you now and he said that to you, do you think you would have reacted in the same way? Do you think you would have said, absolutely not. I'm going to call the doctor right now or, you know. I would have said no fucking way. I would have said, I will be involved. I'm a competent person. And I was then. I think I was more, seemed more girly and I was very hesitant to speak up, but I could certainly, you know, I've been a lawyer. I've done court appearances, not well. I can talk to people. I mean, I had a brain. No, I'm right now. I would say no. This is, I'm not going to be, I don't need to be involved in every single thing, but I'm going to find out what's going on. I'm going to go beyond Google. I'm going to talk to the doctor. This not happening. Yeah. Cause it seems like he was really trying to protect you, but in, in all of those situations, usually someone who's trying to protect you is actually, they're not protecting you at all because you didn't, you could see what was happening before your very eyes, but he wouldn't admit it to you. Exactly. Yeah. I think it probably caused more stress, especially because, you know, he kept telling me I'm getting better and the chemo worked. He was good at the time he he started chemo and some medications and he did really well for about three or four years. So in a way it wasn't on the back burner. I was always really concerned, but he functioned just as he always had. He just didn't have hair and didn't look, always look perfect. He functioned, he kept working. He drove himself to and from chemo He made it pretty easy for me to think everything was okay. And when did you finally know this this isn't okay? I knew it wasn't okay from the start. I mean, it's the internet. And I asked him, metastasized, okay, that's stage four. I asked him, what stage are you in? He said, the hospital he goes to, we don't do stages. It's too disheartening. But I'm not sure that's true. And I was pretty sure we were stage four. So I always knew it wasn't okay. I just didn't really know what to do about it. And then when he was doing so well, I figured there's nothing specific to do. He was always getting proper medical care at a good facility. 
But then, you know, about three and a half years in, he started to really, his body started to deteriorate. The cancer started to win. I should also add that, you know, I went through his medical records. I looked at everything. I read everything. I Googled everything. It was just kind of secret. Looking back, I can't believe it. But I think, and I go into this book, he was in denial about having cancer. He was working, living normally. And I also felt that if that's what's keeping him going, I will be his cheerleader. Yeah. Cause you can't, as much as you wanted to say no fucking way, or you would say that now you can't really disrespect the wishes of someone who's ill. And at that point dying as well, you have to also go along with, I guess you probably wanted to protect him in a way as well, or at least protect his wishes. I wanted to protect his wishes. I wanted to protect his sense of, again, he was working pretty all the time. I couldn't really get him to take much time off, but I wanted to protect him living the way he wanted to live. I think that I felt like at the time that was the best thing I could do for him was protect what he wanted to do. If he was coding at the time, Quicken for Cloud, that was very innovative. If that was going to be his legacy, then okay. If he wanted to be cooking meals together and all that, then that's what we were going to do. And after he died, I know you started writing. (laughs) I love your name of the blog, The Hungover Widow. I think there's a lot of people that could probably relate to that name. But what inspired you? following his death to start writing? I was obviously devastated and I had a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt about caregiving for him, especially because he was in denial as he died. So my options were very limited and he didn't involve medical personnel the way he could have. And I felt so devastated. You go from having somebody you do everything with to being completely alone, waking up alone, going to bed alone, being in an incredibly silent home, Mm-hmm. And I didn't really see a lot of writing that talked about how I felt, and including the anger and the drinking Manhattans <laughs> and the not doing anything productive. Such a good choice of drink, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was our drink together. So I kept on with that. And so I just started to write about how I felt. And that eventually led to you getting a degree. I did, actually. That was pretty recent. George died in 2013. And I just kept blogging and then I submitted stuff to publications and I joined a writing group and a writing class and met my friends in the writing class, writing group or writing books. So I thought it'd be fun to write a book, but my writing, I I wrote like a lawyer, you know, it it could be pretty flat. In 2018, I decided to go back to school and I got a master's of fine arts in writing at St. Mary's College of California here in beautiful Moraga, California. And it was a great experience. You don't write like a lawyer anymore because your book, yeah. available as is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. I just, I've been reading it and it's taken me through so many different emotions because mm-hmm. when I'm reading about George and what was happening as he was deteriorating, it's been so sad. I've been in tears several times, but also some of the dates and things that you went on when you finally started dating again have had me sometimes shuddering in fear, sometimes laughing out loud. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the book. Okay. I joke that I wrote the book to warn other women about the poor quality of middle-aged men, (laughs) at least in the US. I'm a little Uh, worried, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. You should be very afraid. And I was just shocked. The book, I wanted to do two things. I I wanted to talk about creating a new life as a widow, but the dating part was kind of the funniest and the most evocative. So that's kind of what came into the forefront. And it was just crazy. I was meeting these ridiculous characters and my life felt like a Fellini movie, not a very, not one of his best. 
<laughs> with this sort of bizarre group of people who said these things that made no sense to me. And they really seem like characters in a book. So I decided to start writing about it. And then from there, well, I got an editor. And when you get someone critiquing your work, people say, go deeper, more interiority. That was what my MFA professor said, which means reveal more of your emotions. What were you really thinking? So from there, I got past some of the dating stuff to what was really so hard. What was my marriage really like? That was the hard part. I had a really great editor. She's a, a famous author, fiction writer. And at one point I did a review of the book that she'd suggested and I was all done. And this is good. This looks very nicely written. And she said, you know, you've missed the point. You've completely idealized your marriage. You need to talk about what it was like to never grow up and to have that kind of marriage. So that was, that was hard. Yeah. One of the questions I did want to ask you, it seems so insensitive, but what positives that maybe have come out of the fact that obviously you don't want your husband to die, that you've been with for 32 years, you're 49 years old, but have there been positives that have come out of everything? In some ways, yes. It certainly forced me to think about what I wanted to do. I'm a pretty inertial person. And I'm very cautious following my mom's death. And with when I retired from law, I was pretty burned out. I was happy to garden and do home projects. And I exercised a lot. And I wrote. I wrote for fun, but I didn't do anything real seriously. I still don't. But I looked at what do I want to do or what kind of life do I want to have? And those questions, the answer is actually revealed themselves to me very slowly because it took me years to get over the death. I think that's another thing as people don't talk about is how long it takes to return to yourself or a different self after loss. Mm -hmm. People seem to think it's something you can just go through. But after losing George for a while, I did start to think about what do I want to do? I'm really isolated. I don't have women friends. So it's like, well, what are you going to do with that? I don't have a lot of hobbies. Well, I have to go out and start doing some different things. I'd never left the US. George hadn't wanted to travel. So I started to do a few UC alumni tour group things. Actually, his parents took me on my first trip abroad, which was kind of them to say, well, I should probably look at the world a little bit more. Right. And then ultimately deciding to try to publish and write a book and get a degree. So that that changed. And I also, I think, I like to think I became a more authentic, less judgy person with more potential for happiness. <laughs> Did you get into this little cocoon? I think you even mentioned in the book something about wrapping yourself in a blanket, but it was like the cocoon of your marriage and everything. That it becomes nice. easy to just say, if he doesn't want to travel, I won't travel. Or he's been my life 32 years. I can only imagine how hard that was to change all of that. But yeah, that there is a growth that probably is a good thing, ultimately. It was. Ultimately, you know, it was a good thing. It, for the me that I am now, I would have right. stayed back then and I probably would have been okay. I'd always thought George and I would travel and do some more things together when he retired because his work was so intense. And I think it's a lesson to see that we never had that time. And yeah. that's something I would I'd want to share with other people who were putting off living their dreams or the things they really want to do for work because they think there's more time, but there might not be. And my current partner, I do have a new partner of four years now we look at our lives a little differently and not think, oh, we have this whole future. We're also average age 60 right now, but we're also looking at, you know, there isn't like this, you can't just put off having the life that you want or the things that you want to do. Yeah. I definitely remember my ex always saying that he, I wanted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. That's one of the things that's on my list. I don't even like to call it a bucket list because I don't want it to be like, what am I going to do before I die? I want it to be like, what am I going to do while I live? 
Right. And right. he was so like, oh, that's going to take a long time. I can't take the time off work. Obviously, we didn't stay together. But I mean, I just feel like I always thought the same. I'd always say, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen in life. You don't know what's going to happen to physical fitness and things like that. You have to do them while you still have the chance. Exactly. Now, we're not huge travelers, but it did spur like our decision to sell our homes and move in together sooner rather than later. It spurred a lot of decisions like that because, yeah, you don't know. And if you keep putting off having a good time or enjoying your life, well, that's every day you're not enjoying your life. Yeah, absolutely. You said something about some of the funny things or some of the not so funny things that some of the guys you dated said, but I put down a quote because I loved that someone actually said, one of the guys you dated actually said, it will soon be time for us to become physical. That's right. That is a quote from your book. Um, That's just one of many things that I read that I was like, oh God, they're so weird. (laughs) They're so weird, right? Yeah. I couldn't make up these people. All these people are true. I could not make them up. Did you change names to protect identities? I changed names to protect the not so innocent. I probably should have changed a few more details in retrospect, but too late now. <laughs> no, I'm glad you didn't because it was, yeah, it the details are what make it actually so interesting. What do you think was kind of your most eye-opening dating experience? It's odd. And I go into this in the book, but was the most eye-opening to me is I dated this guy who was old money, very patriarchal, treated me like I was sort of auditioning for the role of sort of half lady of the manor, but more like an administrative assistant. Yeah. And I also dated another fellow who was into climate change, extremely modern, considered himself evolved. But both of them were very similar to me in the way they treated me and their attitudes about me as being this naive, stupid widow. And that, that's what struck me was the patriarchal attitudes of two men who were on both such different sides of the spectrum in terms of style and, and ideology. Yeah, just sort of, oh, she's a widow. She'll go along with it. She needs to be taken care of. Yeah, and, that, and both of them were really like they wanted to be exclusive and neither of them was offering what I wanted, which was more of a partnership and actually some joy. And, some t- and, and enough time to have together. The, the more modern fellow was extraordinarily busy. And he was like, oh, it means we only see each other. And it's like, that's great for you because you could get laid very quickly once a week, but it doesn't do much for me. And I was really shocked that nobody had any idea or interest in what I wanted. And they seemed to think that they could bowl me over with, oh, but we'll be exclusive. It's like, well, that's not such a prize. I mean, I was a pretty unevolved woman when my husband died, but- Even I knew that in this day and age, exclusivity isn't the ultimate gift and it isn't a thing that women have to do. Especially after being with the same person for 32 years. And it seems only fair that you would have the chance to, I don't even mean sow your wild oats. I just mean meet different people, understand how people's mentality works, see what modern dating is all about to say, oh, you're not going to, you can, I'll give one bit away from the book, but like you can sleep in the downstairs bedroom but I'm only going to see you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That is not joy. That is no, not what I want. There was no joy. There was no, it was not joyful. You can drive to see me because I hate where you live. So you can come here. And isn't that a gift? In some ways it was a gift because I'd never been on my own. So it was very useful to be able to go from, I never venture out at night to, okay, I'm in the middle of this sort of city-ish area. I'm not happy. I can get in my car. I can drive myself home. 
I have agency. So that was, it was a gift in that way. But no, none of these things were good. None of these things were good. My late husband was a software engineer. I just want to say these were bugs, not features. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. I really want to be exclusive with someone who is actually just not an interesting person or brings me no joy. Yeah, thanks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It seems to me, at least from the book, that you became pretty self-aware pretty quickly, though. I don't know if it was the process of writing the book that really got you to the point that you were like, oh, I'm realizing all these things. Or was it as it was happening, you were going, wait a minute, I know I'm going along with this, but it's not cool. As it was happening, one of the things I didn't do, which is to trust my instincts. And part of that was because I'd been married for 32 years and I'd started, well, in a union for 32 years and I never really dated. So I would meet these guys and I would think, just seems a little off, or I don't know how much if I really like this person. And I would think, go forward anyway. They have a beautiful home and a successful career, and they want to be exclusive, and they're hitting all the check marks that I should want. And so I didn't trust my instincts. And that's what I would tell a listener right now. If someone said, what would you do differently? I'd say, trust your instincts. You meet this guy, you think he's a schmuck, you don't like him, he's not going to change. Your instincts are just fine. And that's something I learned through this process. I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> some of them just seem like such jerks, but I think that's typical. I think everybody who's in a union and kind of thinks, oh, I wonder what it's like to date now or be on dating apps or whatever. When they read the real deal, it's, oh, yeah. But like you said, the warning of who's out there for middle-aged men. <laughs> yeah. it's Yeah. This is a big warning. My book does a lot more, but I really did want to warn about the poor quality of these schmucks. And how they try to make you think that this is an acceptable mode of behavior. And it isn't. So in the book you talk about at the beginning, you had a Georgia meter in your head that was measuring how would George act and what would he have said about this guy. You're with somebody now for four years. So obviously he must bring you joy. Was there still a Georgia meter? Do you know what he would have thought of your new partner? You know, what's really good is there's a lot about my new partner that George would have really loved. My new partner's name is Randall. We've been together four years, so it's not that new. And we've lived together for one. And my, my person now enjoys life, I think, more than George did, is not a workaholic. But like mm-hmm. George, he has super good values. He cares about our home. He's very loyal. But on the other hand, one thing that I have been able to do over time is to turn off the Georgia meter. Yeah. Because I love my George, but he was a pretty old-fashioned kind of guy. So I can... I can, I can also quiet him. I love that, that there is such a positivity and such a growth that you've been through. And nobody wants to have to go through the kind of loss you did. But I think probably one of the biggest indicators of the fact that you've moved on and that you have this joyful life now is that you can turn off a Georgia meter. Yes, yes. I can is that turn safe off. to say? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, I can do that. Yes, I can turn off the Georgia meter. I can turn off some of the voices in my head that are the imposter syndrome, some of that. I do have some of that. But having been through this, I can turn off some of it. And that's that's been valuable. Available as is, is coming out the 13th of September. Is that right? Yes, it is. Excellent. And we'll get links and everything into the show notes so I can make sure everybody can find it. But I, like I said, it made me laugh. I've cried. I think it's I think it's such an amazing book. And definitely out of everything that you said in it, if you could give one piece of advice to a woman starting fresh, whether it's after loss or in their career, what would that piece of advice be? It's so basic. But for me, it was 
figure out what it is that you really like to do. What fills your days with some joy? What makes you happy? I moved to a town on the water because I realized I just needed to be by water. That made me happy. So I would say, figure out what it is that you really enjoy doing. And if you're lonely, figure out how to do it with other people. Yeah. I think sometimes it is so hard when you've been half instead of whole, you've been half of a couple. What is it that you personally like doing when you become that whole person again? What's your thing? Yeah. I never figured that out when I was younger. I'm not sure I figured it out yet either, but I know book promoting is maybe not it, but (laughs) although I enjoy doing this, but it was very interesting. Yeah. I had really had no idea. What did I like to do down to what did I like to eat? Yeah, that's true. It's always what should we have for dinner and where should we go on holiday if you go at all or Exactly. Yeah. And did you bring a quote for me today? Okay, this is it. Okay, this is my quote. This is because I did find someone and even though I'm pretty cynical on dating overall, I do think that love is possible when you're older. And this is a quote from my favorite writer Lori Colwin. It says, "Cooking is like love." You don't have to be particularly beautiful or very glamorous or even very exciting to fall in love. You just have to be interested in it. I love it. And I love the message of falling in love again and that it's possible. It is possible. It's definitely possible. You just have to be, I think just a matter of being open and again, trusting your instincts. And the other message I would give, especially women my age who are out there is don't settle for what you don't want. You know, there are so many guys saying, this is the modern world. This is what there is. No, it isn't. Don't settle for things you don't want. We do always say to my mom, oh, you'd be happy. We would love to see you with someone because she and my dad were separated for years before my dad died years and years. And she's kind of like, you know what? I like being in charge of the remote control and I like cooking what I want for dinner. And that's what she wants. So I definitely think if she found the right person, that might be something, but she's never going to settle for what she doesn't want. And that's smart. See, I did for a while. And that was that was a mistake. I wasted some time with that. It was a learning curve. So I, that would be my advice is you don't settle for what you don't want. And you don't even have to settle for being someone. So many women these days choose to be on their own. I know a lot of women my age who are simply, I've raised my children, men are children. I don't want another child. I'm done. I think that's how my mom feels because she's kind of like, you know what? I took care of six kids. I basically cooked and cleaned for a husband and I don't want to do that again. So is there anything else that you would like to share with listeners before I just say thanks? I think we've done it. I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me here. And I'm so happy you liked the book. That was I really, really good for do. Me. I definitely really like it. Like I said, I'll make sure to put all the links and everything into the notes so people can find it. And I really enjoyed talking with you today, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining me. I love this too. Thank you, Kristen. Debbie and I spoke a few weeks ago. So available as is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love is now available. For more information, check out the show notes at thesecondchapterpodcast.com or on your podcast platform. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.